Making Media Tells a Story of Our Media Business Colossus. If you aren't familiar with our platform, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you'll find our latest episodes across each of our shows, the transcripts, supporting third-party materials, and even some written content as well. So whether you're an investor or an operator, we're out to create the content that we wish we had when we were in those exact roles. Invest like the best, business breakdowns, Web3 breakdowns, and founders each cover different angles of the ecosystem. And our special series like 50X and Return on India are targeting niche topics. Again, make sure to check out joincolossus.com for more on the platform. Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. Welcome back to Making Media. Our guest today, Chris Hutchins, is a bit of a podcast whisperer. I can remember talking to David Senra of the Founders Podcast late last year, 2022. He had just gotten off of a conversation with Chris. He described him as this quasi-data whiz with some of the most unique ideas in podcasting and in media. It was very high praise. And when I looked at the list of people that Chris was in touch with, he was plugged in with many of the biggest podcasters out there. So to me, it was kind of reminiscent of that mysterious German doctor that Kobe Bryant used to visit for his knee. And similarly, Chris lived up to all of the hype. Before Chris went full-time with his All the Hacks podcast, which he runs today, he co-founded two businesses. One he sold to Google, the other he sold to Wealthfront. He also spent time as a partner at Google Ventures before going full-time with his podcast business. For this conversation, Dom and I talked to Chris about what it's like running a podcast business versus running those previous businesses and how much it differs in the podcast industry versus in the traditional tech industry. We also talked to Chris about his vision for a bigger media business, and we walked through some of the different business models that we see out there. I think this is a really excellent conversation with somebody who's doing really creative things in media. So please enjoy our conversation with Chris Hutchins. All right, Chris. Well, thank you for joining us on Making Media. We're going to talk a lot of tactics today. And I want to make sure that everyone knows up front, Chris has phenomenal content. Now, he is probably the man who understands the science of tactics the best. And I think sometimes we gloss over the fact that None of those tactics matter if you don't have great content. So with that disclaimer up front, we're going to get into a, a lot of the science. But I first wanted to just start off more at the macro level. You've founded businesses, sold these businesses. And if I were to step back and look at your podcast as your third business, what's been the most unique thing about growing this business versus your previous startups? First off, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I don't get too often to talk about behind the scenes of building a media company, which I guess I'm now doing, which maybe is a great way to segue into this, which is all my previous businesses have been venture-backed tech companies. And the only time in my career, once I got into that was a break, was as a VC funding venture-backed tech companies. So the weirdest thing about this was that you could start a podcast, you could start a newsletter, you could start a media company even on the side very casually. But when you go start a venture-backed company, you raise capital, and now you're all in. You go from zero to 100 instantly. And when you're starting a small business or a side project or a media company, you can go from zero to 100 over the course of weeks, months, years, your life. So I think for me, the craziest thing was 
when you just record an episode with a friend and publish it on the internet, it doesn't feel like you started a company. It doesn't have the same characteristics. So for me, the hard thing was when you have a company where you've raised money from investors, you have a salary, but all the other money is squarely the company's money. When you have a side project that you wholly own and you have no investors, the money is yours. And two things are strange. One, it's a little muddied. When you have a salary, this is the money I have to spend on things. I know how much revenue I make, but I have no idea how much profit I make. And then there's this weird middle ground of things where there are things that are business expenses, but if I shut the podcast down, I would still incur them in my daily life. The camera we're talking on and that kind of stuff. So there's some ambiguity and spending that extra money is much harder because there's no defined salary. It's a strange thing. So for me, just treating it like a real business and deciding to go all in on it was one. Then I think the other big thing is in tech, where I spent all my time before, everyone starting their thing was optimizing it to the biggest degree. Every founder I met with had a similar approach. And in podcasting, it's just not the same. Almost every other podcaster I know doesn't think this is a business. What are the growth levers? How do I optimize it? They're like, I'm recording content. It grew. It's awesome. And they do a really good job at the content side. But the business side of media is something that's often run by media companies. But with podcasts, they're not really companies as much as they are people. And so the old industry, just doing it on the side is much more the common than trying to run a podcast like a startup, which now I'm focused on. Then the last is that I didn't realize how important the content side of it was. I went into it thinking it's all about the growth. It's all about this and do what the people want. No, the content has to be good. It has to be natural. It can only be natural if you're excited about it. When someone sends you an email, I have a bajillion followers. I'd love to be on your show. I just don't have any interest in what this person talks about. It's a weird situation. But the answer, if you want to grow long term, is probably to focus on good content. Maybe once a year, you sacrifice the content for a major growth opportunity. But it's so important to just focus on what you're excited about because that comes through so much in the way you write, speak, everything. You teed this conversation up perfectly. And like you said, you were part-time on all the hacks. Now you're full-time. Take us firstly forwards. What's the mission here? What are you trying to build? And I know you're big spreadsheet guys. Are you talking through those blurry lines of what do I take home? What's the businesses? How do I invest in this stuff? How are you thinking about what this company, what you want it to be? And then how are you treating it in terms of a business itself? So when I started it, I just wanted to see what happened. I've always been a crazy diehard optimizer. Everyone in my friend group, in my colleague group was like, Chris is the person you call when you just need to figure something out, especially if it has to do with saving money or traveling. That was the thing. If you're at a dinner table and I was talking and people were leaning in, it would be because I was probably talking about saving money, getting a deal, flying around the world for free, something there. That's evolved to be a theme anywhere. We're having kids. I'm going to optimize the parenting journey as much as possible, build spreadsheets of the best strollers, you name it. I've gone down that path everywhere. During the pandemic, I just wasn't getting to share anything because we weren't having dinners. Maybe I should try a new way to share this. I'd started a blog and I'd written two posts and then I never wrote a third. I had a social media account, but I've taken my dabbles of trying to actually consistently share things and just it's never stuck. I've never tried audio. But I've been a guest on podcasts and I really liked that. It was very natural, but I've never done my own thing. Why don't I try it? And worst case, I'll record eight episodes. And if it's not good, I'll relabel those eight as season one and there just won't be a season two. It'll be like a show that got canceled. No big deal. So I started it with the goal of let's just see what happens if I use this medium to share my passion for optimizing life, life, money, travel. 
it worked. Oh, this is a thing. But it still took me a year to realize that work equals business. And I think if I were advising a friend of mine, it might have taken me six months. But because I was advising myself and we're so much harsher critics of ourselves, it probably took a year or even longer. I think I technically probably didn't leave my job for 18 months after starting the podcast. So the vision early on was, I just love doing this. I'm going to keep doing it. There wasn't a big thing. Over time, I've come to the conclusion that I think there's a thing I am both uniquely passionate about and uniquely capable of building, which I don't think anyone's really tackled, which maybe transcends the podcast at all. I think there's a massive organization to be built for a new generation of people that like living optimized, excited lives, like experiences, like traveling, like getting the most out of things, but don't necessarily want to spend as much money as it could take. I would love to never fly in coach again. I don't know many people who would say that, but I don't want to pay for it. I think I've one time paid for business or first class flight, but I've probably done it 50 times, but it's all because I'm optimizing the points game. I think that that lifestyle is about more than a tactic and more than an optimization. I think there's an organization, I've been calling it AARP for millennials. What is the generation that's in retirement right now? They have this organization that's built for them in that stage of life. But I can't think of an organization that's built around helping people who want to optimize their lives. They want to travel. They want to have amazing experiences. They want to eat better, be healthier. They want to find all these areas and they want them to be better. And they don't want to spend as much as you might think you have to to do it. And so that organization could help you get better deals on travel, on all kinds of things. So that's this crazy idea where if that's successful, there'll be tens of millions of people that are members of that organization saving money and living their best lives. And the podcast will be a medium for consuming content from that organization. So that's my crazy, crazy idea that is not a media company as much as it might be something else. If we zoom back and say, okay, well, that's pretty far away. I have a podcast. What's my goal? The goal is just be able to impact more people's lives. I just think that I'm constantly learning things that I'm hearing listeners say, this improved my life. This saved me. I got an email the other day. Someone say $14,000. If you want to hack right now and you're listening and you live in the States at least, go in and search the unclaimed money site of every state you've ever lived in. I can't count on any number of fingers how many people have saved 100 to... I think the leader in that is over $5,000 right now. So... I love saving people money. It makes me happy. As long as it's not making them sacrifice their entire life. Sure, there's an easy way to save money. Never go outside, eat beans and rice, live with your parents in the basement. That's a great way to save money. I don't like that version. I like the optimize your travel. I like the find the deals and find ways to make everything more efficient, but still live that awesome life. Maybe you can keep up with the Joneses. You just don't have to spend what they spend to do what they do. I love that you came with a tactic right off the bat. That's great. I know many people have already paused the podcast and have... uh started their search. And email me if you find money, because I'm keeping that leaderboard. If you could be 5,000, I'm going to talk about it. Yeah, double it up. So what you just described sounds incredibly interesting. If I take the versions that I think that exist out there today, I am curious just on this overall grand media plan that you have, however far it may be away. But if I said, we have your podcast, we have something blog related, like the points guy himself, What do you think is the missing piece to that? Is it just more content? Is the content delivered differently? Is it the way that the business runs? What's missing? I think that content is always going to be interesting, but products and services are probably going to infiltrate life more. So if I say, hey, here's a thing that you pay $100 a year for, and after you join, your flights are 3% less, your hotels, you get free upgrades, 
your cell phone bill, you get a huge discount. You have a community of people. Right now, we're planning a trip for members. So I have this membership already. It's about 200 people. It's small. It's really excited people. We're building a community. There's a book club where people are sharing books they read and discussing them. We're planning a trip to Iceland. And so we have a guy who spent six months in Iceland, stayed in every single hotel, did every tour, ate at every restaurant, did every activity. And he is dialed in. We just released an episode entirely about Iceland. And he and I are going to host a trip to Iceland for members. That stuff, I think, is something that, well, of course, I want to join this thing and be a part of this thing because there's so much that comes out of it that will improve my life. And I think that's just an easier sell than give up you know, hours of your time every week. We will probably get to talking about content on different platforms, but they're just 41% of people listen to podcasts right now. So yes, there's upside, but where does that cap out? I think you brought up the points guy. It's a really interesting example because there's only so much you can do with one small topic such that the average person just doesn't want to read every post. And the points guy, best I understand, it's doing close to $100 million of revenue a year. I don't have any official numbers, but a lot. But if you look at that website, in order to keep the readers engaged, there are topics and articles that are going down niches that I think the average person isn't that interested in. So you just can't go too all in on one thing. Otherwise, you're making it hard for someone to know how to use you and you end up having to be more the SEO play, which I think is where they dominate. I'm looking for a thing. You land on the Points Guys website. But if you just subscribed every post, you'd be like, well, do I really care that Lufthansa is using a new stitching color on the leather seats they have in their business class flights? I'm actually maybe kind of interested, kind of funny, but the average person doesn't care. You touched on there in terms of the opportunity in podcasting today. Can you just flesh out a bit more for us how you think about it now? Obviously, you came in having never done any audio, like you said. Now you're a fully-fledged podcaster. How do you think about this medium for you and it serving your bigger mission? Yeah, I think there are very few content types where someone can feel like they're in the room with someone else. And so the thing I love about podcasting as a listener and as a host is that you build a relationship that just doesn't come across when you read something. It doesn't come across when you watch a three-minute YouTube video that's filled with flash. And by seeing someone in another room on YouTube, you're very clear that you're not with them. But when you're listening to a podcast and you're doing the dishes, it just feels like they're around, you're talking to them. It's a very intimate thing because it doesn't necessarily feel like they're talking to you as much as they're talking with you. There's a great article about building your thousand true fans. It's much easier to do that when you can have that relationship versus an Instagram reel that maybe pops up in your feed every now and then. We were trying to do some math with a friend of mine who has an Instagram following. What's the number of Instagram followers that equals one podcast listener? And our conclusion, I think, was a thousand to one, maybe. If you have 10 million Instagram followers, you probably have 10,000 podcast listeners. So I just think, yes, you could build that. I would rather have a thousand podcast listeners than a million Instagram followers, because I can just have such a better relationship with those thousand than having such a more casual relationship with a thousand times as many people. Other people might agree or disagree. That's their prerogative. I can tell you that if I want to go get a comped night at a hotel, it's way easier to walk in the door with 10 million Instagram followers than it is with a thousand podcast listeners. But I also like getting the real experience when I'm at a hotel so I can talk about it instead of we've comped you, we're taking care of you experience. Yeah, I don't mind that other experience, but I can understand why for you, it's beneficial to have the real thing. It's a conversation we actually have quite a bit in terms of newsletter subscriber versus RSS feed subscriber versus 
once you get into the social media game, forget about it. The dilution is just off the board. When you think about what you're describing, which I think is a theme that we love to talk about, content to commerce and basically taking your content and expanding it into other services or goods or products. Do you look around and see anybody else doing really interesting things that you're trying to emulate or other examples that inspire you to do what you're doing? The most inspiring one is what Peter Atia is doing right now. And I wish that I had another source of revenue that I could live on that I could have done the model he's doing. And for those not familiar, Peter Atia is a doctor. And working with him directly is quite expensive. I think somewhere in the order of fifty dollars to $100,000 a year just for access. That said, he released a book that covers so much that I highly recommend. He released this program that's a content version of his practice that seemed like an expensive masterclass, but a bunch of people I know took it and said it was great. But the way he does his podcast is there's a regular podcast and then there is a paid feed. And the paid feed doesn't remove ads because he doesn't have ads. The paid feed gives you access to these deep dive Q&As, which otherwise you only get a five-minute preview of on the regular feed. But then he worked with brands and instead of having those brands pay him to promote their products, he went to brands he loved and said, hey, funnel whatever discount you would have spent to market on my show into a better discount for my members. And that in some ways inspired what I hope to be the membership I want to build. The challenge is I'm in this middle ground where I've quit my job. I had sponsors. Those sponsors pay for the podcast to be able to pay for my life. And I'm not living this crazy, opulent, private jet life. So if I was, I could just dial back. But in the future, I would love to have a podcast where join the membership and all of the brands that I love and that I think you will love, you could just get better deals than you get anywhere else in the world. And we have two of those now. So if you're listening to this and you don't have an estate plan and you have kids, one, you absolutely should. Will, trust, healthcare directive, all that stuff. If you have children, you need this. Trust and Will is a company I've used to do that for our family. And I went to them, I said, hey, give the best deal you possibly can to our members. I will promote it regularly. Here I am promoting it on your show. And they said, great, we'll give you 50% off. You can't get 50% off that product anywhere in the world, but you can if you're a member of all the hack. That I think is a really cool model. I don't like the model of let's just pay to remove ads. So to play the counter to that, I have a paid subscription feed and it removes ads. It seems you're just asking people to just pay you and giving them this subtle perk of skipping the ads. I would argue that if people really want to skip your ads, did you choose the right brands to work with? All the brands I work with are products I use. Viore is a big advertiser. I'm wearing Viore all the time. Inside Tracker, I use to regularly check all my biomarkers, all my blood levels, everything. So I think the model of picking brands you love and you want to work with really, really impacts the show differently. Yeah, you've got to be authentic. And it's a good segue into the more micro science-based discussion here about what you do, and particularly in podcasting. You mentioned at the outset that you underestimated the value of content itself. You've got to nail that first, and then everything flows from there. If you think about what you've learned about making really high quality content, you've got A, the subject matter, what people hear, and then how they hear it in terms of the audio quality, which you just touched on. How do you think about the quality of your content in those dimensions and then anything else you've learned? If you want to record a podcast interview or anything, and you want it to sound as good as possible, you could spend a few hundred dollars and buy better equipment. We're all here, and I think we're all talking on a Sure microphone, I think in the $250 to $400 range, and the audio hopefully sounds fantastic. That said, I started off with a $99 mic, and half my guests are talking on their laptop mic or their iPhone headphones, and 
I do try to have $200 mics that I just ask guests to ship to other guests so I can try to get a little better audio quality. But I've never gotten people complaining about the audio quality. Audio engineering is so good these days. The tools that we have access to to tweak and fix audio and make it sound like you're in a studio, even if you're not, are so good that I would say content is infinitely more important than audio quality. Quiet room? Great. All right, you're done. That is the bare minimum for recording good podcast content is quiet room. You can record it on your iPhone. The iPhone voice memo app is actually pretty damn good. But the content of what you're talking about is going to be the most important thing. And I hear people email me, oh, my podcast isn't growing. What do I do? Look, I can send you all my tactics. However, you need to make sure that you actually have good content. And it's very hard. Everyone thinks they have good content. But the reality is there are probably 100 topics I could talk about that no one would listen to. And I just got lucky and chose the podcast topic that was right. I didn't actually know what it was for years. Even when I bought the microphone I started the podcast with, I bought it for a different podcast. I had this whole idea of parenting. I was going through the process. My wife was pregnant. We were planning for kids. And I was trying to optimize everything. And I was like, I'm gonna do a parenting podcast from the dad's perspective. That was the plan. Had a whole notion set up, bought the microphone. And then we had the child. I liked the art of optimizing that process, but I don't know if I actually like that topic as my lifelong mission and passion. I can't do that podcast. I was excited to optimize what stroller to buy, but at the end of the day, I wasn't excited to keep talking about it after I dialed in a certain thing. Had I started that podcast and it got not that much traction because I wasn't as committed and excited, none of the growth tactics in the world would have helped. The content just probably wasn't good. Who knows? I didn't do it. Could have been a season. I think that's a season. Buying a diamond rings a season. We can go on a long list, but now you have your core show. That's just a spinoff. Yeah. So I think content's the most important, infinitely more important than audio quality. There's one great metric of is your content good, which is are people listening? Unfortunately, unlike YouTube, unlike social media, unlike even emails, there is no inherent viral growth mechanism with audio. The challenge is you genuinely could have the best podcast in the world and release it on Apple, not tell a soul about it. And it could sit there with no downloads for two years. Getting growth on podcasting is so much harder because there's no algorithm that says, oh, wow, 100 people liked this and they watched the whole thing. Let's show it to 100 more. Wow, they liked it. Let's show it to 1,000 more. They like, let's show it to every person that comes to YouTube, which gets billions of views. So YouTube is incredible at helping a video that is very good get in front of so many people. The exact opposite happens on podcasting. So I think it is challenging because if you launch a podcast and only 100 people listen, that doesn't mean it's bad. But if you launch a podcast that your mom loves, it doesn't mean it's good. I tend to think there are a couple cheap ways to test it. Literally, Overcast is a podcast app that lets you buy ads on it. And they show you benchmark rates for how many people that see the ad, click the link, and then subscribe. Some people are going to subscribe without listening, but a decent number of people are like, well, let me listen to the trailer. Let me listen to a little bit before I make this subscription commitment. So I tend to tell people, hey, go spend 500 bucks, advertise on Overcast, depending on your category. It could be 100 bucks. Or if it's in business, it could be 1,000 bucks. But pick a category, go run an ad. And if you don't blow away the benchmarks, hmm, either my cover art sucks, my description sucks, or my show sucks. Or I picked the wrong category. But I think finding ways to test it with audiences that aren't so committed to your personal relationship with the person who could be really harsh critics is really important. Find your friend that always tells you that you actually look bad in what some outfit you're wearing. And, hey, can you listen to my show? And ask for feedback. But yeah, it's very hard to find out if you have good content in podcasting. In terms of growth, assuming you have the best show in the world, let's assume the content's in place. There's a lot of different tactics that have been talked about. 
appearing on other shows, getting your shows out there on social media. Has there been one inflection for you that's resulted in a sustainable jump in terms of growth, not just a guest who got a ton of downloads and then it dipped back down the next episode, but an inflection that represented a step change. And then the second part of that question is, if there is one tactic that you would lean into, what would it be for growth? Like I said before, 41% of people listen to podcasts. And as I've talked to more and more people, people listen to podcasts for different reasons. There are people that listen to podcasts because they want the news. So they're in the 41%. But they have no interest in the content I'm creating. Or they're people that like it for relaxing. They listen to sleep meditation. So of that 41, there's an even smaller subset of people who are probably interested in listening to podcasts about whatever you're talking about. Keep that in the back of your mind as you're thinking, okay, I want to try to get this in front of people. I want to try to grow my show. I need to get it in front of a certain type of person. Well, you can walk to the mall and you can go talk to people, but there's no reason that those people are likely to be in whatever subset of that 41 is relevant. So the most obvious places go to people where that subset is. And the only place I found where it consistently is very likely that someone is in that subset is other podcasts. So two ways to, or maybe three ways to get in front of other podcasts. I guess four. One is to get in the apps that they're listening to podcasts on. I mentioned Overcast. You can buy ads on Pocket Cast and Player FM and all that stuff. Go to the shows and you can either pay to run an ad on the show. You can pay for that show to put an episode of your show in their feed. You could pay to be a guest on some shows, though I'd be skeptical of shows that support that model. So you could pay to do it. You could do it in kind. If you have something that you can swap, that's really hard when you're just getting started because you don't have a thing. But if you have a massive newsletter and you're trying to start a podcast, go to a podcaster and say, hey, do you want to do a swap? I'll promote your show on my newsletter. You can promote my show on your podcast. Maybe you have a few properties. You have three podcasts. Well, I'll promote your show on my big podcast if you promote my small podcast on your show. You could swap in various different ways. This is a tactic I'll share for anyone doing podcasting that I think lets you swing above your weight class is that you say, hey, let's record an episode together. And let's release it on both of our feeds. When we're talking about, hey, you read ads for me, I'll read ads for you. Okay, how about 10,000 impressions for 10,000 or 100,000 for 100,000? But when you're like, hey, let's just record an episode together and release it on both of our feeds. Now, all of a sudden, it's, oh, we don't need to worry about how many impressions there are because it's an obvious way we're going to operate. So I think if you do that with bigger shows, you can get away with it. And if you prep the show, come up with the idea and make it really easy for them, you're almost giving them a gift. Hey, let me hand you a piece of content for the week. If it's a weekly show, that's one fifty second of your work for the year that I'm going to do for you, which oftentimes helps. So that's one. Then you could just be on the show. So I would say, hands down, the number one most affordable thing you can do if you have a small show and you want to grow it is find something that you are worth interviewing about. And then going to pitch yourself to as many possible shows in as many verticals as possible to have you on to talk about that thing book launch. Great. People love to interview authors that are launching books. So that's one. But if that's not it, find a niche and take the time to tailor that to the show you're on. I did a podcast with Tim Ferriss. And this is a great example. I happen to have known Tim. He's a friend of mine. I pitched him. I was like, hey, here's a cool topic for me to go on your show. And he's, I'm not interested in what you talk about. He was very honest with me. I just don't care about optimizing my travel, my money. It's just not a thing. Right now, when I think about what I'm passionate about and what I want to do on my show, that's not the topic, so not a good fit. Okay, that's fine. I'm starting a podcast. I have a thousand questions for you. And granted, he proposed this idea to me, so I can't take all the credit. But I said, here are 20 questions I have about podcasting. And I'd done the work to make sure that all those questions weren't ones he's answered before. 
I listened to every podcast he's ever done where he talked about podcasting. So these were new questions. And he came back and said, you know what? I have an idea. I get emails every week from people like this asking me questions. Sometimes they just ask questions I've already answered, which is annoying. And sometimes they don't. And I haven't recorded a everything I've learned about launching my podcast and growing it to, at the time, 700 million listeners. He proposed, why don't you come on my show? But why don't you host it? And why don't you interview me about growing a podcast? That is a must listen. And I say this because people have told me that, not because I just think that. It's three hours. It's long. It sounds like one of you might have listened to it. Oh, yeah. Mandatory stuff for the Colossus family. Excellent episode. Yeah. So that episode, I saw a huge step change. 5,000 extra listeners per episode sustained forever. How did you think about the next episode? So you've gone on Tim's show. You've got a huge bump in your own show on the back of that. How did you think about the next episode you released? Because now you know you've got this pent up people that maybe have never heard of your podcast before. Now they've heard of it. They probably either subscribed or it's just going to come up naturally in their feed next time around. Did you change what the next episode was going to be? Did you just say, I'm just going to release whatever I was going to release? How did that go? It's funny you say that because I have no idea what the next episode was. Partially because I got a few days notice on when the episode was actually going to come out. So I didn't have the chance to think about it. So that was part of it. Part of it is early on when this was a side project, it was very just in time. It's not like I had an archive of 50 episodes to pick from. Also, because if I do an episode and I think it sucks and I just am not happy with it, I just won't release it. And I'm not going to do a topic I'm not excited about. So I probably put a little thought into it. When I first launched the podcast, I thought, okay, I'm going to release three episodes in the first week. And I want them to be the most broadly applicable. Because if you're a diehard fan and you've bought into this whole thing and you're like, I want to listen to the show, I love the show, I'm listening, you know, and the next episode something you're not interested in, you'll either maybe give it a listen because you want to see if you were wrong or you'll skip it. But if you're brand new to a show, and for example, if Tim's audience is mostly people without kids, and my next show is all about family, there might be people that are like, I don't think this is the show for me. And so I don't know what the next episode actually was, because I don't know if I had a lot of choice in the matter from a timing standpoint. But if I did have a choice, I would have thought as hard as I could about what is the best thing I could put from a perspective of the most broadly applicable. Yeah, makes sense. The flip side of growing podcasts, obviously, you can go on other people's podcasts, but you obviously, you as an interview show, bring other people onto your podcast. Is there anything you do unique or interesting with them once they've been on the show in terms of helping promote the conversation they've had with you? So there's an incredible tool called Chartable, which effectively, you route your podcast feed through their server. They see all the IP addresses of all of the people who download all of the episodes on your show. And then they do this for lots of podcasts. And you can send a note to them in the form of something called a smart promo and say, hey, or a smart link. You can say, hey, here's a link to something. Can you track how many people click the link and then ultimately listen to the show? So you could track all of this stuff. Early on, I was testing everything. What happens when you click the link? And I would go to guests and be like, hey, I'd love you if you could promote the show. Here's a link. I'd post the link on Twitter. I do all this stuff. At the end of the day, I found that even large audiences don't convert that well from a tweet or an Instagram reel to listening to a podcast. What they might convert is from a tweet or an Instagram reel to my Twitter or Instagram, get to know me and eventually, oh, I've seen Chris a lot. He's made a bunch of short form content that's interesting. Maybe I'll go listen to his podcast. I don't have a lot of content on either of those platforms. So I have not seen a tremendous amount of success there. I do have a newsletter. And I do think there's a lot more overlap between longer form newsletter content and podcasts. 
So I think if someone has a newsletter or an audience, I will try to get it in front of them and ask them to share it to that audience. I'm not as diligent and I probably don't do nearly as much as I could when I'm on an episode with a big guest getting them to promote that episode because I just haven't seen a huge amount of traction. And having been a guest on a lot of podcasts, there are times where someone's like, can you please share this? Can you please share this? I don't know if the guest actually liked doing the interview. It was a favor enough to do the interview, but I don't know how they felt about it. And I've had times where I really didn't want to share it. And I felt all this pressure. I didn't like putting that pressure on people either. So that was a little bit weird. So if I know the episode was amazing, I'll give a link to someone and ask if they could share or I'll tag them on Twitter or Instagram and see what they do. But if they have a newsletter or if they have a podcast, I'll try to set something up. So if I interview them, I did this with the podcaster the other day. We did an awesome interview. And in advance, I said, hey, I'll have you on. And you don't have an interview show. So it doesn't make sense for me to come on your show. But maybe you could run an ad on your show for my podcast. Sure. So I'm definitely thinking about when the strategy is really tightly aligned. But when it's more just share this on social media, I don't know. I probably could optimize that 10 times better. But like I said, I tried being a social media personality for a couple of days. Didn't work. And so I just haven't figured out how to care about giving a lot to social media. It just it never clicked for me. Makes sense. It seems to be very haphazard for us, even when there's huge response, retweets, action on a tweet doesn't always translate into episode performance. And I don't think there's strong enough data to suggest correlation between the social media performance and the podcast performance. I'm curious, just at a very high level in terms of success of the podcast, is it downloads that are the North Star? Is there anything unique that you think about with those downloads? Who's in the audience? Anything else about that? Great question. Early on, I was tracking analytics like crazy. How many downloads did I get today? How many downloads does this episode have? Now, I'll check it every couple of weeks. I think early on, I wanted to see the numbers grow. But now I've learned that every episode, there might be episodes that people love. There are episodes that I've gotten more feedback about than any others. People love them, but not everyone loved them. And the download numbers were down. There's seasonality impact. So at the end of the day, I care about two things. One, directionally over time, is the podcast not declining? It's now at a place where the business has replaced my job. So yes, I want it to grow, but I care a lot more that it's not declining than that it's growing because now it's my job. If you're listening to this, you have a job. What do you care more about? Getting a raise or not getting fired? So for me, if the podcast starts declining, sponsors are like, yeah, we're not getting any value here. That's like getting fired. I care much more about not getting fired than I do about getting a raise. Assuming I'm not getting fired, I do care about getting a raise. Yes, I track downloads per episode as the primary metric of how is this doing, but I do it over time and I trend forecast it out. So I know my 7 to 90 day number multiple, and I'm looking at 7 day numbers and comparing it. I just want to see that it's going up a little bit. But if I'm not doing any marketing, any podcast promotion, it doesn't grow that fast. That's just the nature of podcasts. And then separately, I probably care now that it's a business and it's my job, are advertisers and sponsors renewing. That's also maybe more important. The reason to care if you have a bigger show is that you can make more money. I feel like I can sustain my life now. So I'm less worried about making more money in the short term as much as I am just being able to sustain. So if advertisers are renewing and people are enjoying the podcast and it's not declining, I'm happy. But obviously, long term, there's a lot of things that would benefit from it being bigger. But I try not to get too caught up on that. I just try to focus on making good content. 
How in a typical week does your time get split out in terms of the different activities that this small business requires from having the conversations, finding the guests to the advertising sponsorship and then the membership that you're also building? How would you categorize those? Not well. <laughs> uh, I, like, I, don't, I don't know if I can do the best categorization because the life of a creator is every week's different, it feels like. You're the optimizer. I know, I know. But this past two weeks, I recorded seven episodes and next week I'm going to record zero. So I'm not going to record 2,000 episodes. It's going to be on the order of 52 a year. So I, I kind of batched a bunch in a short window of time so that I could try to free up time to focus on other things in the short term. And then I also just brought on AEA to help with all the things. So that's been really interesting, finding someone that has enough skills that they can almost be a not just an admin, but also be a player on the team. She's now talking about, hey, let's cut up these podcasts and put it on social. So she's excited about that in a way that I'm less excited about. So she's running with that. And if anyone hasn't explored that world, she's based in Sri Lanka. I found her through a company called Oceans, uh, OceansXYZ.com. They were fantastic. The team there is really great. So that's helped to split the time out. I would say planning for interviews and recording them or planning for content. We didn't talk much about this, but I've experimented with content. And when I started, the show was all interviews. Now I'd say it's probably 50% interviews. And that's been a huge change. And of the interviews, it was all about life. And now once every four to eight weeks, it's about traveling to a country. So if you look at the content that I now have, I would say over 50% of what I think you will see over the rest of the year is content that was not within the structure of the show when I launched it. And that's been my openness to just go where I'm excited about and where I think people will find value. That intersection is really important to me. I knew we talked about travel a lot. People are always asking about places I love going. I was asking guests about their favorite thing to do in cities they love. What if we just do a whole episode on Japan? People loved it. What if we do a whole episode on France, which I'm recording in 20 minutes? Experimenting with all that content, that's where I spend a lot of my time. I have a partner that I really want to recruit to come help build the membership out and almost treat it more like a company with a co-founder. So stay tuned there. What drew the change, particularly from doing more interviews to now doing more episodes by yourself? The change was genuinely that two things happened. One, there were a few topics where the old version of me was, okay, well, if I'm going to do an episode on this, I need to go find the right guest to talk about it. So I'm looking for the right guest, struggling to find them. And then someone asked me to do an episode about hidden credit card benefits. I don't know the right guest for this. Wait, why do they want an episode on this? I wrote a whole newsletter on it. All my newsletter is long form, 3,000 word newsletter. And I was sitting there thinking, well, wait, I wrote 3,000 words. That's basically a podcast episode if I talked about it. Why am I trying to find a guest to talk about a thing that I actually know as much or more than the guest? I started realizing for topics that I've done the homework on, why am I trying to find a guest to craft the conversation in the exact way I want to see it happen if I'm the expert there? I'm not an expert on everything. There are areas where I wasn't an expert, like strollers, where I feel like I'm now an expert on. But if I'm not the expert, I want someone else to come on. But if I am, maybe I was thinking that a guest was necessary because I didn't know what I'm doing. And maybe I needed the confidence from 100 plus episodes to do that. But now it just seems easy. So that was what made that super easy was just, I know this thing really well. I've written about it. Why not just talk about it? And the solo episodes, I don't have this spiky nature of the show. A great episode and a terrible episode is within like a 10% band of downloads. But I know that when I do solo episodes, it's not drop 50%. So, and it's fun. Some of it was out of necessity. I don't have a guest this week. So what am I going to talk about? 
benefits to building that muscle memory. The sponsorship approach I think you have makes a lot of sense. It's companies that you believe in, that you're comfortable speaking on the podcast, off the podcast, on other podcasts. Is there anything else that you're doing to make sure that those partners see success from your podcast or however else you're promoting them? Yeah. Because I'm only picking a small number of brands, because they're brands that I use and love their products, I'm trying to treat it less like a you bought an ad and more like you bought a spokesperson in a way. And that doesn't mean I'm going to their corporate events. And that's not what I mean. But because it's only a dozen products and services that I love and use, it's very easy for me to talk about them. So I didn't come on this episode and be like, I'm going to talk on this podcast today about Inside Tracker because I want to make sure that they get some extra love this month. That's not what I came in with the perspective of doing. But when I was talking about sponsors, they just came to mind. And it's natural and easy to talk about them because I use the product and I love the product. That's an example. And I think when you have a relationship with them where you can orchestrate deals, it helps. The challenge is with attribution. Podcast attribution is so tough that if someone doesn't go to a URL, you either need to say, hey, go listen to this podcast where I talked about you. Or you need to say, hey, go to allthehacks.com slash inside tracker so that they know I sent you there. But when you have a really good relationship with these podcasts and you've done this for a long enough time, hey, I did this thing, I did this thing, they've maybe stopped necessarily looking at the numbers as much because they have that relationship with you. So I'm trying to create those relationships with brands. And when I can create those relationships, I'm talking about them in the newsletter, I'm talking about them here, and I'm not tracking it all, I'm not charging for it all. I have chosen to say, this is my podcast sponsorship rate. And I know that I'm going to do enough outside of the podcast that makes this perform better than other podcasts and makes it more expensive per download basis than other podcasts. And I've seen renewals support that from those brands. So, And just in terms of getting in the door, something that we have found is the best sponsors are your listeners, those that really understand the power of your podcast. And we see that across the different properties. But we've also seen other podcasters who've been able to build those relationships from basically knocking on the door. How has that worked for you? Obviously, these are brands that you use. So I'm sure that there's some connection to them. But I'm curious how you've gone about building those relationships. 75% is that I found a guy that I got to know who had done this for another show and had a ton of relationships. We now work together and we're doing even more cool stuff together. So that's a big piece of it. Because the reality is there are products I love. And that brand just doesn't necessarily advertise on podcasts, or it's not a good demographic fit for my show, or the cost to acquire a customer just doesn't line up with what it would cost to buy an ad or something like that. So you can't just, I love Dr. Pepper. So hey, guys, can you advertise on my podcast? (laughs) That just doesn't always work. So a little bit of it is finding the intersection of brands I like, brands that advertise on podcasts. And then the other piece is just reaching out to the ones that don't and trying to get them to get comfortable with it and run an experiment. And the fact that I know enough about what works, and I'm collecting insights from my partners and sharing them back with other partners is super helpful for people as well. So all of that comes together to try to create really good relationships. Awesome. One quick question about the experience of doing this yourself. You work in either small teams or big teams your whole career, and now you're you're building this business on your own. What are the hacks for doing that well, staying sane, enjoying the process? I'd say it's a little lonely. I think actually starting the membership was really cool because once a month I do a Zoom call. I get to talk to the people that are the most excited about what we're doing. I'm fortunate that my wife is the behind the scenes co-founder of the podcast. So you've got a sounding board. I think that's really important 
whether you do that from your community, whether you do that from a friend, a partner, a family member, just having someone to bounce ideas off of really helps. And honestly, my wife, I think she has her own job. We have two kids. Sometimes I think the demand of asking her, oh, what did you think of this episode? I have so much stuff to do. Do you really need me to listen to this episode? The really cool thing is now Pasani, the person from Oceans that I hired to help work on the podcast, she's also able to do that. She's listening to the episode. She's giving me feedback. She's coming up with ideas. I would say in tech world, oh, you need a co-founder. But in media world, you need someone with some vested interest. And that could be a listener. It could be an EA. It could be your partner. It could be your family member, your friend, just someone who's enough to be real with you, but also care enough to have the context. Because it's not helpful to be like, what did you think of this episode outside of the context of all the episodes I've done? Makes sense. Well, Chris, this has been awesome. Thank you for your wisdom. Again, you provide a lot of it on your show. So we'll point people there. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This has been great. All right, Dom, immediate reactions. Give it to me. So disclaimer up front, I'm like the anti-hack guy. I think I'm too lazy to do any hacks. I leave free money on the table wherever I go. If there's a promo code, I'm likely not to use it because it's too much friction. Unless it's unbelievably easy, I just don't do this stuff. So with that being said, I think Chris's stuff is actually quite interesting and useful. But I do find it ironic that he started a podcast about hacks, given that podcasts can take like an hour to consume. It's not a very hacky medium. Quite difficult as well to pull out exactly what he said and then learn from it and apply it in real life. But I think it really shows... And we've asked guests a number of times on this show, what should you start if you're starting out now as a content creator? Should you be doing video? Because that seems to be the medium that's driving growth everywhere. And as his answer said, you got to do what feels right for you. He tried everything and stalled out on a ton of different mediums and then got to podcasts. I can do this. I feel natural doing it. I'm enjoying doing it. I can last a long time doing podcasting. That is such an underrated insight. As someone in the trenches, I can assure you that that's probably the most important thing he said. Yeah, completely agree with you. It's about what makes you feel comfortable. And I think he identified that pretty early on with, I wrote a blog, a couple of posts, didn't work out. I just even think his energy, when you hear him at the start, once we launch off, he has just this certain level of energy, which plays pretty well over audio. And I also think that he talks a little bit about the intimacy of what audio offers, which has been talked about a lot on our podcast. But I think when you're trying to do what he's trying to do with building community around it, planning trips, that is probably where the audio medium really allows you to take a deeper step because it creates more of that relationship. And again, if the difference between Instagram or TikTok or even just a person who's writing on Twitter versus someone who you're hearing their voice, I do wonder in a poll, are you more likely to travel with somebody where you've listened to their podcast versus somebody that you just watched on Instagram? In the back of my head, I say yes. But I do wonder if that's a real thing. But I definitely think it came across. And I agree with you just in terms of the comfortability of the medium. And it's interesting. We've talked about content commerce a lot on this show as well. Clearly, that's what Chris is going for here. He starts with the podcast, building the media business, getting eyeballs, quote unquote, onto his content. And then he wants to build this membership where he can help people find these discounts and monetize them through that way in the community. But he's very early compared to some of our previous guests like Doug in the commerce part of it. And he talked about that's a long way out in the future. So it's interesting to see him at this point already starting to think about what the next thing is, but also how difficult it is to build in real time. He's started a membership. It's a very small thing at the moment. And you can tell the way he talked about it, it's not easy to build this community that feels it's thriving and growing. And okay, which partners can I bring in? How can I get them to support 
my audience and then either take a cut or get them to pay me directly. It's interesting seeing someone in the thick of it right now. Yes. And I think extending on that, what I actually appreciated most was hearing how it differs from his previous two businesses, which he co-founded and sold and had successful stories there. I think he alluded to just the nature of venture capital dollars and what that results in, in terms of lighting a fire and you know what the mission is and you fill the mission versus it's a podcast business. It's a little bit less clear. The lines are blurred. And to me, it's a bit of confirmation bias, but it separated this business and the challenges in terms of growth versus any other business. And I just think it's important to have that type of nuance. And I think he articulated really well. And it's really helpful to get it for someone like him because he is so data-driven. It's one thing if it's somebody who always talks about, oh, it's the art, you can't turn it into a science. It's another thing if it's the guy who's literally turned everything into a science and done it incredibly well thinks in his brain in terms of optimization and spreadsheets and all of that, and he is articulating it that way, it carries a little bit more power than the opposite of that. So I thought that was pretty cool. I think it's neat how he's testing out different formats. And I'd be curious if we brought Chris on two years from now, four years from now, how much would change and how much would stay the same? Because he does cycle through and test new things out all the time. It is very much a mentality of test this, see if it works, if it doesn't, on to the next thing. I think he gave a lot of examples, whether you pick up on it or not of doing that. And yeah, I'm just curious to see where he goes with it. A hundred percent. I think you mentioned nuance in there. And I think there is one big piece of nuance. And I think Chris would acknowledge this. Going on Tim Ferriss's podcast and getting 5,000 new subscribers to your show that sustain over a long period of time is an extremely rare thing to happen for anyone early in their journey of podcasting. And the sustained thing is really interesting for me because we've had people across our shows who've come on really big names with huge audiences. Sometimes that episode and flex higher, but retaining those people is really difficult. And we you know I asked him what he thought about the next show, and he answered as I suspected. I didn't really think too much about it because ultimately I'm always close to the mark in terms of recording and delivering a show for the week ahead. And so you have to go with what you've got. And I think we saw something similar on this show when Neil came on from No Laying Up, and that episode did extremely well and continues to do really well. But what do you do for the next episode? Because you know you're onboarding some people that have probably never listened to the show before. They've now listened to you talk to Neil, but getting a feel for the next thing is going to be really important whether they retain thereafter. You're not going to get everyone listening to your show all of the time, but you do need to give them more reps and convincing them that this is a worthwhile endeavor for them to spend their time listening to our podcast. And I think that's really difficult. But I also think if you're starting a podcast, you're not going to go on Tim Ferriss's show and you're not going to get 5,000 new podcast listeners that sustain on your show. That's just not going to happen. I think you're underplaying it a bit though, because I think I agree with the whole mantra of you can put yourself in a place to get lucky. And I even think saying that getting lucky is probably a stretch on this, but he optimizes around all of the different corners. So I could extend that out and say, similar thing with the sponsorships. He found somebody who had a relationship with the majority of the sponsors that he wanted to work with. And I think that's really important in terms of everything else that he's doing. Okay, relationship there, relationship with Tim. But it's the approach that you take around everything else such that you can set yourself up in a way where I might have a relationship with Tim and with that sponsored person. Can I take advantage of it? Probably not. I think there's probably a lot of people that couldn't. It's because Chris does all the other things around the edges that allows him to do that. So the cynic in me would oftentimes agree with you on that specific point. But I think it would be very easy to overlook all the other stuff that's going around it and how it puts him in a spot to be like that. 
I won't sell Chris short like you're trying to do here. I think Chris deserves all of that credit. I said there was nuance. I didn't say I was selling him short. But I think you're right. And the way he framed it for anyone else looking to go on a big show, I've never really heard it in that detail, but I think it makes a ton of sense. If you want to be on someone's show, do the work. Do more work than you think is necessary. Tell them exactly how the show would go, how you would format the show, how you would make the best episode you possibly could for them. Don't make it about you saying that I'm this wonderful entrepreneur. I built this business to $100 million. I'm the guy for X. Say, I know this is what your show is about. This is how I can fit into the format of your show. Here's how I would structure the conversation. I think that would have so much more impact in my inbox than the dross that comes in currently. It's funny because it's just like dating. It's just like trying to pick somebody up at a bar or over some other form of communication. There is very much an art to it, not a science. And what will work with some people won't work with the others. But I think that's right. You got to get creative with it. And I think he had a really creative approach. That was how I was originally familiar with him. I didn't realize how much work he'd actually done himself behind the scenes on different things. And he is somebody who I think just offers such an interesting perspective, given what he's done and how he's tracked it. It's very different from the majority of the conversations that you have, which are a lot more finger in the air, anecdotal data points here or there, but not the specific data set that he talks with. You tried the Overcast thing, didn't you? That he was talking about in terms of trying to find product market fit using the ads on Overcast to test your show name, show description, etc. How did that go for us? The data didn't really tell me much in one direction or the other because I wasn't controlling for specific variables. So I would change the copy based on where we were placing the advertisement. I think one thing that's obvious is Overcast sells the listener or you can target specific listeners and there is a rate. If you're picking up a sports listener, they're valued a lot lower than the business listener. So it's just a matter of, does that make sense in the marketplace? For us, it does. You want the highest quality of listener. But if you're just trying to maximize outright downloads, you should always go towards something like sports where cost per acquisition is 3 bucks or 4 bucks. So it's basically played out that way for us. I didn't notice anything too unique in terms of testing different things out, but I was usually changing more than one variable. So not exactly the expert data scientist over here with how I'm doing that. I think Goldman Sachs will teach you better than that. It was interesting. He's kind of him testing different formats with his show. I just find it endlessly interesting how many podcasts end up doing more and more episodes, either by themselves or in their team. There's a very simple reason for that. It's much, much easier. It's hard to find guests. It's hard to make sure that they turn up on time. And it's hard to make sure that they have an interesting conversation. Naturally, that leads you to saying, okay, I can control myself. I can't control anyone else. So let me try this. And it keeps popping up. It's funny to me too, because I think about, I think it was Hitton said on our podcast earlier, you don't want to be the journalist that writes for other journalists that's a bad thing to get into. And I think sometimes it's easy as a podcaster to create podcasts for other podcasters. And that could be very different than creating podcasts for big audiences, substantial amount of listeners. We're in a funny spot because our audience... (laughs) Yeah, we're flying close to the sun on that one. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. But people just tend to flock more towards you and relationships with you. So I think there's a balancing to it. Yes, it could be easier to pull off not as easy to make it entertaining, but easier to pull off in the sense that there's a lot less logistics required. And you know what you're going to get. It has a much higher floor, but the ceiling isn't nearly as high as well. Would you rather 10 million Instagram followers or 10,000 podcast listeners? Instagram followers. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> it's easier to post a picture than record an episode. Well, 10 million just sounds like a substantial amount to me. I just think that I would arb that math. 
I think you could probably parlay the 10 million Instagram followers into a 10,000 person podcast. That's what I mean. I think there's probably opportunities. So I would probably put a different multiple on it, but that's fair. There's definitely a limit. Anything else? I thought what he said about the Peter Atia model was interesting. Probably wasn't what it was surprised to hear him say that would be his preferred model. Uh, I was thinking through it. My brain was racking. Okay, what would that actually mean for the advertiser in terms of offering a bigger discount through whatever the offering was versus paying up front for it? And it does seem there is slightly more beneficial aspect to paying up front because then it's a fixed cost. But it all depends on how many people sign up. But that's where my brain was going with it. Are there any limitations to that model beyond the obvious in terms of, from your perspective, getting more subscribers? But are there any positives or negatives for the advertisers? But I just thought that was an interesting point of view. And I do like seeing how many different approaches people have taken to this. I think it's always surprising when people are like, oh, you should do a subscription model. And when they see the evidence is 3 to 6% conversion in terms of what your listener base is people who sign up and subscribe. And I think a few people have had that and some people, the number's even lower than that. So to hear what Chris finds interesting and who he admires and how that varies across different people in the space is pretty interesting. 100%. He could end up with a really interesting membership model where it might cost 120 bucks a year to join, but he could very easily quantify how much they would save if they follow his tips on an annual basis. And it might be like $200. So He'd be stupid not to sign up because you're going to save $80 a year, even though you're going to pay him up front and receive the, the benefits down the road if you're that way inclined. And I think he's got a fair point just in terms of the differences between a points guy, because in the back of my head, when I was listening to that, I was saying, if I was listening to a podcast like this, I would have to point out, okay, how is this different than the points guy? But I think there is a difference in terms of relationship. Now, I don't know what that means for scale because you can have that intimate audio relationship and in the early days, get that with any groups and community type. But does that reach a breaking point once you get bigger and bigger and bigger? But I did like how he had clearly thought through how it might differ. There's a guy in the UK called Martin Lewis who's built a very similar thing, specifically around finance. And he's become the money-saving expert is his name. People go to him for all these tips on mortgages, credit cards, etc. He's built a huge business and he's always in the media. So there's a big prize out there. Yes, big market, huge market, just like media and making how big of a market that is. Yes. Yeah, it's a small blip in our market. Did you see we're starting to get more reviews transitioning into the overall meta conversation, more reviews coming in. Do you notice that? I do. Yeah, I get a daily email with our ratings and reviews. I saw our superfan Brock slid into my email last week, I think it was. So Brock, thank you. Appreciate you. I thank you, Barack. I do have to wonder, as the most listened to podcast, and you are a big podcast listener, to only get four stars, despite it being the most listened to podcast, I do wonder, I hope it was a fat finger, but I respect your standards. Military man, great podcast for yourself, incredibly detailed review, which was excellent. We will accept it. We love it. Even if it wasn't five stars, four stars, and fairly glowing remarks, I just have to wonder, what is perfect for you? We will keep striving over here. Tough to know whether to listen to the anecdote or the data on that one. I'm going to follow the words. But if you're out there and if you want to leave us a review, we would love to read it. And as Brock has shown, we're okay with you being honest in the review system. Mostly okay. Yeah, just nothing below four. <laughs> uh, this is awesome. Special shout out again to David Senra for connecting me with Chris originally, Founders Podcast, somebody who was very obsessed with podcasts. 
And when he gave me this anecdote that Chris was somebody who had more debt on podcasts than anybody he's met, I thought to myself, I better spend some more time digging into this person than Chris has lived up to all expectations. So much appreciated on that side. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week. Amen. All right. Talk to you next week. Bye.